My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to ER Chaplains Watching ER. We are here tonight to talk about two more episodes from the first season of the great TV hospital drama ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent Lawton, and tonight we are a duet. I have with me Sarah Jane Moran. Hello. So we are going to be looking today at Long Day's Journey and February 5th, 95. So to recap the first episode for us, Sarah Jane with the bullet. All right, Long Day's Journey. The episode's first major patient is a 36-year-old woman who claims to have fallen off a ladder. Her two children, David and Mandy, come in with her. The staff quickly realizes that the mother shows signs of old and new abuse that could not be self-inflicted. Ross takes it upon himself to speak with the children. He bandages up the daughter Mandy's hand injury and talks to them about domestic abuse. The younger child, David, finally tells the truth that it is Mandy, the young teenage daughter, that abuses them all. Deb, the newbie, is overworking herself in an attempt to stand out and therefore making John Carter feel unneeded. Zach Allman comes in with a broken leg. His father, a PE teacher, blames himself for the wrestling injury. Due to the broken bone, they find cancer. The parents are terrified to tell Zach, but Ross deals with him like a champ and helps him through the bone sample taken with a needle gun. The Changs come in asking for induction for the pregnant wife because of tummy issues. It turns out that they will do anything to assure the birth occurs before the new year. This is due to their family's cultural beliefs about personality traits. Green is flabbergasted, but one of the OBs agrees to induce 10 days early, citing religious reasons. A woman comes in after ODing on pills. She's left a suicide note. Her friend is by her side holding an infant that turns out to be the dead woman's baby. Admissions alerts for crispy critters, that is, burn victims coming in. Willie, a man with cystic fibrosis who has saved a young woman, Nancy, from death in a burning building. His lungs are already failing due to his condition, and he prepares to die. The girl he saved comes in via hospital bed to thank him. Deb wins the day again as her photographic memory helps her diagnose a woman with diverticulitis. Her bedside manner still needs major help, however. Terry is a homeless teen's teenage sex worker who comes in after being severely beaten. His best friend is at his side as Ross alerts him that he has AIDS along with pneumonia. Ross urges him to change his lifestyle, but the patient leaves with only some antibiotics and condoms. Ross, struggling with a hard shift, goes out to play basketball and finds Jake, a preteen, using the court. They strike up a friendship, but his mother knows Doug by his reputation as a ladies' man and shows him contempt. Dr. Kaysen, Dr. Lewis's nemesis from the last few episodes, comes in with a heart attack, and she goes to bat for his treatment wishes, summoning all the assertiveness any doctor could need, and thus both are saved. Yes, thank you. Lots going on. Um, as always. As always. <laughs> but with only the two of us to talk about it, um, all of our other colleagues, um, our three other chaplains who are sometimes here, uh, listeners, are away at conferences. That seems to be the 
thing to do this time of summer. There are so many different conferences going on. So we've got people and um, in D.C. and Texas and elsewhere. So I can't remember where Janie is. Um, but yeah, all kinds She's of She's in North Carolina. North Carolina, that's like, it. Yep, near a lake. She's posting pictures of the mountains, making me jealous. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Uh, <laughs> and Carrie's in D.C. and I think, I'm pretty sure Deb is in Texas. So it's just us tonight. Um, and we were saying earlier how we really wish Carrie were here, particularly because the first patient that we get right off the bat is this abuse case. And I'm sure Carrie would have some great insights into this. Um, Sarah Jane and I were saying neither of us have had a case like this where it actually turns out it's the daughter who's abusing the mother, the, the teenage daughter, um, who obviously has some mental health issues. And, um, Carrie actually has mentioned on our podcast before a situation that sounded like this, where abuse was perpetrated by the child onto another. I'm not sure exactly what the situation was, right? but I know that she has some experience in this kind of cases. So I'd really love to um, hear her viewpoint on this kind of trauma and uh, the family dynamics. We never do get to hear from the father. Everything's sort of cut short and we don't know how it's handled, we do know that the mother ends up passing away from her injuries. Yeah. So the family will be changed for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when we as viewers see this situation unfolding at first and the, the doctors, you know, determine that there's previous history of abuse, you know, injuries, um, I think everyone just sort of assumes that it's the husband who has perpetrated the abuse. And... um nobody would suspect that it was the child <laughs> until we see the daughter um, break out in anger when her brother confronts her and, and says in front of one of the medical staff, you know, you have to tell them what happened. It was you, it was you. And she just blows up. Well, actually, I was proud of Doug Ross because even though he did make an assumption that it was somebody else in the household, he did not assume that it was necessarily the father. He asked if there was anyone else living in the home with them. Ah, so good he point. didn't necessarily assume that it was the spouse. It could have been someone else who was in the home. So he's just having a real bad day on this. Now, Long Day's Journey looked up, um, and that's a shortened version of Long Day's Journey and Tonight, which is a play um, which deals with uh, family dynamics. Uh -huh. um, and kind of like how it all falls apart before the end. So I figured that was what they were. Pretty much everyone is dealing with some personal crisis along with the crises that are going on in the ER. So a lot of them are coming to a head um, in, in the show. Not all of them in this episode, but some of them. So Yeah, um... One of the family things is Dr. Benton is looking for someone desperately to help take care of his mom after, in the last episode, he had hired a neighbor and then his mother had wandered off <laughs> and um, they had to go find her. So he is now um, looking to hire someone more, a medical person, and the nurse, Halle, recommends Jeannie Boulay, who's, I think, a physical therapist um, at the hospital, and so Benton talks to her and ends up hiring her for a few days a week at least. Which means that he's suggesting that he be uh, part of the, the network to take care of her the other couple of days of the week. And 
even though he claims that he will change and be reliable, it's pretty apparent that that's not the way things are going to go. He even, uh, yeah, he's not, he's never where he's supposed to be on time because that's not how surgery works. Right. Yeah, he has sort of this confrontation with his sister, Jackie, um, somewhere outside the hospital. She comes across town. She makes a point of saying she came across town to talk to him. And, um, and he says that, you know, he's going to hire this woman to stay with her. I think with Jeannie, I think he had, she had said agreed to two days a week. But he tells Jackie that Jeannie's going to be there three days a week and that he'll take the other two days every week so that Jackie can, you know, work her job that she's just gotten and enjoys so much. And Jackie says, probably rightfully so, no, you won't. You've never been there before. <laughs> um, and she wonders also how Peter's going to afford to pay Jeannie. And, um, and then he asks her back, well, how would you pay for a nursing home? And she says out of their mother's savings, which gets Peter very upset. And he accuses her of spending all their parents' money. Um, and, and Jackie says everything except what she gave you for medical school. <laughs> so there's just a lot of sibling dynamics there. They're just going back and forth. Um, and then Jackie says, again, she's absolutely right. She says, yeah, you may have debt now, but in a few years, you'll make more than Walt and I will ever see. And there's a lot of tension in the family about um, the different, I mean, the whole family has sacrificed a lot for Peter to be a doctor, and he doesn't always appreciate that. I think we talked about that in the last episode. And this, this uh, stress that he's feeling over... All of that is bleeding into everything that he's doing at the hospital. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the two students who are working underneath him are really feeling uh, the pressure, and he has a run-in with Helay as well, <laughs> and she is one of those nurses you do not want to cross. So over the course of these two episodes, they are head-to-head -head in their stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get into that a little bit in the next episode, definitely. There's a lot of it there. Um, yeah. And he Benton misses rounds because he's out talking to Jackie and um, he's worried that Morgan Stern will be mad at him. So it's, it's hard finding that balance between family and work that we've talked about that before. I feel like this episode though, overall seems to focus on Doug Ross. Um, yeah. Some of, some of the other episodes are pretty evenly distributed, but um, we do have, we have Susan Lewis and her, uh, run in with the board where in which they pretty much are on her side and, um, hold Dr. Kazin responsible for not getting all the information he needed mm -hmm. for the patient that died. Uh, so she's vindicated with that, but they are still not getting along. So we do have that and we have the fact that um, Dr. Lewis is still not forgiving Dr. Green for um, his part in that whole debacle. So they don't have their friendship to fall back on, and that's affecting them as well. Yeah, definitely. I do feel like the title speaks to Doug Ross's day, though. He, uh, he's, he's just having a lot of really tough cases. That mm -hmm. don't really seem to have um, a lot of salvific qualities or cheerful uh, endings, and uh, it's making him question himself. Um, 
Yeah, and that, I mean, that definitely happens in a hospital. You just, you know, you have some days that are pretty mixed bag and then other days where it just seems like every case is just so uh, bleak and depressing and they just come one after another. I kind of had a day like that recently, which happened to be my birthday. I just it came home and told my husband I'm never working on my birthday again. <laughs> So it could kind of feel for Doug, for sure. And that, and working with kids, it just, you know, it seems even worse. Like things are not, bad things are not supposed to happen to these little people. They're supposed to be at the beginning of their lives, you know. And, and for some of them, this was the end or the beginning of the end for them. Or the girl with mental illness whose mother died because of her actions. Um, you know, her, this, her life is going to change drastically because of this. We also see that in the one case with of the child, Zach, who needs to have the biopsy taken on the issue of a patient's right to know what's mm -hmm. going on with them, which can get even more sticky with children because a lot of times parents panic and don't know how to share this information or how much children can actually handle. Mm -hmm. But the way that Dr. Ross handles it is to just be completely honest while keeping the information at a level that he can understand. And he is just immediately responsive to the parents' relief, even though he does realize the gravity of it because his, he went with, through this with his father who ended up dying of cancer. So yeah. it's not that he doesn't understand that this is something huge, but um, his bravery immediately kicks in. And, you know, it's there, there are some good scenes of Doug you know, with him holding his hand through that. It's easy to villainize the parents, you know, and say, what are they doing? What's wrong with them? But that was just, everything happened so fast that mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we need, and that would be a good place for a chaplain to come in and talk the whole family through the situation along with the doctor doing the, you know, informing of medical procedures. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I would want to talk to, this mother um, of the patient who lost her husband to cancer. I can't remember if they said how long ago that had happened, but obviously, you know, there's a, still grief that she's working through there. And then this learning that her son may have cancer is just bringing it all back. And of course she's having trouble coping and she's fearful of, you know, possibly losing another loved one and, um, and doesn't want to tell her son that this is even a possibility because, I think because she assumes that he will respond in the same way that she would. And, um, and she's worried that maybe he just won't be able to handle it. And he really surprises her um, when Doug is able to give him the facts. And, and it is so important with kids to explain things in an age-appropriate way. And Doug really is, is expert at that as a pediatrician. And not all pediatricians probably are, um, but he's, he's one of the ones who does it very well. And when they do the biopsy, um, Doug is explaining to him step-by-step step everything that's going to happen, you know. Um, now she's, you know, using a disinfectant to clean the area and just telling him every single thing that's going on, um, which, again, is really important with kids.
Ross gets even more desperate with uh, a patient of Terry who lies about his age, says he's 18, but he's actually 15, mm -hmm. um, living a fairly hopeless life. Uh, doesn't seem to have, I don't know, the will to change or can't visualize anything else. Um, was kicked out from his family, perhaps from being gay, but that's just a guess, it's not actually said. Yeah, that was kind of my um, assumption too, but it's never really stated. But the fact that he would have turned, you know, on the streets to being a sex worker, I thought maybe that reflected that. Mm -hmm. um, and Ross tries so hard to, you know, give him all the facts and try and encourage him to the right way. And, you know, he's just so eager to get up and go back to the way things were, which is something truly frustrating. Yeah, it is very frustrating. When you see someone that you know needs to change and they don't appear willing to change. Um, so Doug feels really powerless in that. Anyway, I was talking about how staff are often call in the chaplain thinking that we can also help convince a patient to change change the way that they're living or uh, change their outlook on life. And sometimes that's just not possible. And uh, he does the best he can in this situation, offering him, you know, the most immediate tools at his disposal, which are both completely acceptable. Antibiotics for, you know, the immediate, you know, infection he has, as well as the condoms to try and protect others. Yeah, and sometimes doing even those small things like that, those small practical things can help break through that feeling of, of powerlessness when you want to help someone and you just don't know what to do. And um, sometimes for me as a chaplain, it can be just going to get them Kleenex when they're crying or offering to get them water or just practical things like that. Or is there, you know, anyone that I can call for you, if I can make phone calls for them, just any anything at all, any small thing um, can help. Yeah, you have to have a little faith that all those pamphlets, uh, all the shelters and the, the different you know, tools that could help them will one day not fall on deaf ears. I do believe that Doug also gave him the phone number for a shelter. Yes, he did. And uh, the number for an AIDS treatment center. So hopefully he'll follow up with some of that. But um, just with any job in the hospital and people walk out the door, you never, a lot of times you never see them again. You never really know what happened. So you just want to give them all the resources that you can in that moment. And then if you're a person of faith, you just entrust them to God as they walk out the door because um, they're not, they're not in your hands. They're in God's hands. In contrast to, um, Terry's, you know, view of self-preservation. We have Willie, who um, already knows that he's going to die young and chooses to basically sacrifice himself, knowing that it'll affect his body in a negative way in order to save someone else. So that was kind of a <clears throat> shining beacon in the middle of the episode that he was willing to do that, to go into the burning building and 
even realizing that his lungs were already very much weakened by uh, his illness. He's, he gets to uh, cystic fibrosis. Yeah, yeah. By the way, don't call burn victims crispy critters. Ugh. Unfortunately, I have heard that used in the hospital. That I yeah, I have too in one of the hospitals that I was in. Um, yeah, I love the moment when Nancy, the, the girl that Willie saved from the fire, comes in, wants to come in and thank him. And um, she's very tearful and obviously, you know, has heard about his condition and realizes the sacrifice that he made for her and is very, very grateful. So can we talk for a second about Susan and Lewis and Dr. Kaysen? Um, after, first of all, again, it's just hilarious to me that they're both sitting in the hospital smoking because they're both nervous about this meeting they're about to go into. But, um, but when they do go before the, I don't know what committee this is, but, um, you know, they kind of chew up Dr. Kaysen and spit him out. Rightfully so, I think. I mean, she's just a resident and he was the one who didn't do his job as thoroughly as he should have and signed off on this patient who then ended up dying without hearing all the information that he needed to hear um, and kind of rushed through it. So he's, he's furious as he leaves the meeting. And then the next time we see him, he's being brought in on a gurney, <laughs> um, having a heart attack in the hospital. And Susan is his doctor. Um, she asks him about TPA, and I had to look up what that was. Um, I understood that it was a, a drug, not um, um, a surgical procedure, but it's tissue plasminogen activator, um, a drug that can be used to dissolve blood clots and clear blocked vessels. Okay. So, uh, well, yeah. We both learned something today. Yeah. So apparently she and Dr. Kaysen had had disagreements in the past about TPA, and she asks him if he wants TPA rather than angioplasty, um, and he nods that he wants the TPA. Another doctor, a more experienced doctor, comes in and uh, just charges in right away and takes over and is preparing to take Dr. Kaysen for angioplasty. Susan steps in and stands up for him and says that that's not what he wants. And the other doctor says, oh, stop this adolescent behavior. Again, just talking to her like she's, you know, a 10-year-old child, not a medical resident. And I can't help but think, would he have spoken this way to a, a male resident? Um, but she will not back down and really stands up for herself and her patient as she should and, um, and finds that, um, that moxie that she was lacking before in previous episodes, that assertiveness that everyone told her she needed. And Dr. Kaysen reaches out and squeezes her hand to say thank you. I liked watching Dr. Morgenstern during the meeting, too. I think that he knew that Kaysen was going to get ripped apart but he still wanted to use the whole situation as a, a learning and growing uh, point for Susan Lewis. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it just goes back to him. He's, he's a pretty wise guy, and he's, he always sees things from all sides, I think. Um, in fact, we're, we've yet to see some of his character flaws. We really don't know very many <laughs> of them yet. He always seems to know his people very, very well. Knows when to be tough on them and when to be 
easy on them and how to encourage all of them in the best way that it fits their personalities. So um, I, I was watching him during that meeting and he, he seemed to really know what was going on. Yeah, I really like Dr. Morgan Stern. Um, it'll, it'll be in later seasons, we'll see some of his flaws, but not for quite a while. My husband says that we need to, we were watching the opening scene and, you know, usually with the first patient, when they have them on the table and they're throwing around all the medical terms and everybody's so busy and, you know, to the rest of us, it's just, it, it seems like such an alien, strange thing that they're all speaking the same language um, of medicalese. <laughs> and my husband was wondering how many consultants they had to have on this script in order to make sure that everything was right. We had talked about one of the other episodes about how uh, Michael Crichton wrote this in the 70s when he was in medical school and how we were thinking that, it, you know, it probably had to be updated for the 90s. But it would be interesting to look up and know how many people they had to run it by to make sure that they were getting everything right. Yeah, um, Michael Crichton wrote the pilot. And then after that, I don't know how much he contributed, okay. but... Um, you know, obviously he had gone to medical school, even though he did not end up being a practicing physician, but I know they did have, you know, medical consultants. So it would be interesting to know how many <laughs> they went through, especially yeah. over the course of the 15 years that the show was on, um, right. and how much medicine changed in those 15 years, you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch it with the benefit of time, looking back on it and how different some things are now than they were when the show started. Yes. So how about this pregnancy? It was, they wanted to, the child to be in the year of the dog. Was that right? Yes, not the year of the pig because the, uh. the cultural belief was that those children would be lazy. Um, and the, the husband says, not that we believe that, but our mothers do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's obviously something that's important to them. Well, and it might be it might be easy for us to just you know shove it aside as a superstition, but nearly every culture has some form of that. Oh yeah, we've um, all got when our it come, when it comes weird to beliefs. Birth. Yeah. So um, I I find it pretty believable, but I do like what what Green was talking about. This is you know you you can't come in here and and demand exactly what you want. <laughs> yeah, it's just, this is not a like an auto repair shop or something like that. Um, but then of course the, when the OB does come in, he's like, oh, of course you can, you can induce, you know, a few days early or whatever. Um, which I think that does happen more and more often that people, you know, schedule inductions around, like this doctor says, around vacations, around holidays. And this wasn't any different to him. So he was okay to do it. Yep. And I think that would vary from OB to OB. You might, they yeah. might've just stumbled on one that particular day that was okay with that but you would find others that would have an ethical issue with that idea yeah i'm sure every doctor would be different so what do you think that basketball represents to doug ross hmm, that's an interesting question it you know it, it it seems sort of juvenile to, to relax, to go out and play basketball. Although yeah. I, I'm not sure I really believe that. Everybody has, has you know, different forms of release. 
Uh, but, you know, he's talking to this little kid about, about how he had dreams about being a basketball player, but he was too short. Uh-huh. And, you know, he gets along with kids so well. But there are times in this episode I really feel like um, he's trying to grow up a little bit. I'm not sure if it'll stick. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have a lot of faith in him. <laughs> he, he relapses quite often. He does. But I did. But I did feel a little bit sorry for him when uh, Jake's mom was um, kind of, you know. I know that his, I understand that his reputation would precede him in the hospital. Yeah. We all know people like that. Oh in yeah. The hospital. Mm-hmm. It, it happens. But um, so I'm sure she's wondering what what his angle is. Yeah, the um, I I read somewhere in one of the many articles I've read about ER that um this basketball hoop George Clooney actually wanted this basketball hoop on set so that he could decompress between shots by shooting some hoops. Um, he's from Kentucky, by the way, just like me. And basketball is is our sport there. That's what everybody does. I mean, we had basketball hoop in our driveway and would shoot would shoot with my dad all the time when I was a kid. Um, and everybody was really into basketball. So I know he grew up with that. So, so that was George Clooney's thing on set. And then they noticed when they were filming that they would sometimes get the hoop in the shot just by accident. And then they just decided to incorporate it into the show. Um, so there are over the years, a lot of scenes of, especially Mark and Doug sort of bonding, playing basketball, having heart to heart talks and, those are some of my favorite scenes from the early seasons of ER that I always remember. Absolutely. And I love the different ways that they, they shoot that area. I mean, it's like a, a little alleyway beside the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're up above the basketball hoop. Sometimes they're looking from one direction and another. And uh, it's, it must be interesting to film that small of a space. But it always yeah. does bring out the vulnerabilities of whatever is going on with the character. Yeah. That's, but that's a really interesting little aside. Good uh-huh. to know. <laughs> I know my George Clooney trivia. Yeah. What can I say? Um, he is just, God, he was just melting my heart with these kids. Like when he, you know, picks up the baby whose mother just died from an overdose. And, um, and that whole situation, I think, for both him and Carol was bringing up a lot of feelings from Carol's previous suicide attempt that this was the same mechanism that she used, you know, um, to overdose on pills, but this patient took a different kind. Um, Mark mentions it would be so much easier to bring her back if she had only taken painkillers. But um, so they they can't they are not able to save her. But Doug just takes this baby boy in his arms to try and comfort the baby ostensibly, but I think is really wanting some comfort himself. <laughs> just remembering mm-hmm. that that could have been Carol, and he still has really deep feelings for Carol. Well, and at the end uh, of the episode, uh, Mark comes out and tells him that there's a baby with croup for him to come take care of. And uh, he says, well, at least that's something that I can fix. Yeah, that's such a relief to him. Because just mm-hmm. be- just before this, when he was in the um, the locker room and Benton comes in after his confrontation with his sister and he's, you know, annoyed and angry and He's worried that Morgan Stern's going to be upset that he missed rounds. And he tells Doug, you guys in pediatrics have got it made. 
And it's the wrong day to say that to Doug. And Doug tells him, this morning I had a girl who beat her mom to death with a baseball bat, a little boy with osteosarcoma who's probably going to lose his leg, and a young man with cystic fibrosis. It's winter, my apartment is freezing, and the woman I had thought might stay with me told me I'm not the type of guy women marry. So I'm going to go shoot some hoops. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to hug him. Just wanted to hug him in that moment. But anyway, um, anything else from this episode that we've missed? I think we pretty well covered everything. Yep, let's end the long day's journey and move on to the next episode. <laughs> okay, we'll be back in just a moment to talk about February 5th, 95. And we're back. I have a recap of our second episode tonight, which is titled February 5th, 95, which seems like vaguely forever ago. Um, to start off with, doctors Green and Carter go with the paramedics to the scene of a small plane crash and miss the runway and hit a car. A woman is trapped inside the car, and Green says if they don't get her out soon, she won't make it. Carter enjoys the excitement of helping out at the scene of the crash, but complains when gasoline leaks onto his camel hair coat. Jonathan Weiss is a 42-year-old man who collapsed playing handball. Susan Lewis and Mark Green disagree over whether he had a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism. Mark turns out to be right, so he gets to do the embolectomy. Carter and Chan are excited to watch. Dr. Morgenstern tells them it's just like snake in a drain. Mr. Weiss is immediately able to breathe better. Doug Ross and Carol Hathaway treat Harold, a teenager who was bitten by his pet snake, a poisonous pit viper. He says he brought the snake for examination, but when he looks in his bag, the snake is missing. Grace, a terminal cancer patient, is brought in from a hospice house. She's having trouble breathing, but tells Mark, please just let me die. Carol is proud that she has scored two new crash carts for the ER, but they quickly disappear. She later spots them in cardiology and assembles her own little team for a covert op to steal them back. Benton chastises nurse Hale for writing down an order before he gave it. He talks to her very condescendingly, and as passive-aggressive punishment, Hale refuses to write anything on the chart for him the rest of the day, slowing Benton down considerably. Dr. Morgan Stern is very impressed with Mark and tells him they'd like him to stay on next year as an attending physician. A 12-year-old boy with multiple gunshot wounds comes in. Carter is shocked to hear that a kid so young was a gang member with guns of his own. A boy about the same age comes in a while later, walking around, looking in rooms. Bob asks him what he's doing there, and he pulls a gun on her, waving it around at everyone. People freeze. He finds the kid with the GSW on the table and tells Ben, and Benton tells him the kid is dead. He leaves. Carter says, this is madness. Carter and Chan are supposed to present cases for their peers. Carter half-asses it with a couple of x-rays, but Deb gives a high-tech computer presentation and passes out copies of her outline to everyone. Carter quietly bangs his head against the wall in frustration. Grace, the cancer patient, keeps asking for her daughter. The hospice nurse explains to Mark that she had to give up custody to her ex-husband when she went into hospice. Life goes on, she says. Then again, sometimes it doesn't. Carter learns that Deb's mother is chief of surgery in another hospital, just as he also opens a medical cabinet and finds the missing snake inside. Grace finally dies, and Mark seems very shaken by it. He then goes home and fights with his wife about their future since he wants to take the attending job 
and she wants to stay another year in Milwaukee. Physical therapist Jeannie Boulay, whom Benton has hired to care for his mother a few days a week, tells him at the end of her first day that his mother is not doing as well as he had said. She has left side paralysis, is bumping into things, very confused, and is incontinent. Peter's also two hours late getting home, and Jeannie tells him not to let it happen again. I think the beginning of this episode um, shows us some of the excitement that sometimes um, they have outside of the hospital. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to go save someone's life and then, ride, well, they get to ride in the ambulance, which is, you know, a, an adventure. And then uh, Green gets to ride in the helicopter on the way back. Yeah, there's no room for Carter, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, I think in this episode, Carter shows a couple of times, like, his naivety and privilege comes out. Yes, uh, very much. And he just seems so young. Like, we, mm -hmm. we had seen him growing up a little bit, but he kind of regresses in this episode um, back to seeming really young and not kind of not getting the world. No. <laughs> um, the whole, the, the comment about the camel hair jacket. I mean, there's a woman dying in front of you, Carter. Yeah. Come on now. Yeah, who cares if gasoline will come out of camel hair? <laughs> it was a Christmas gift. Right. Yeah, we're getting hints that his family is is pretty wealthy. Um, and he definitely comes from some privilege. And then his male privilege shows in, in a lot of ways. And in, in that he keeps getting shown up by Deb Chin. And he's sort of upset about that. But it's only because she's trying so much harder because she she feels that she has to as a woman and a, you know an, a woman of color it's harder for her mm -hmm. to get the same respect that he is sort of given automatically mm -hmm. and she knows that but he um he gets frustrated with it but she's still I think it was in the last episode we didn't mention this but she when she says to Benton that she remembered this diagnosis because she had seen it in some medical journal and she has a photographic memory and she she says oh I have sort of a photographic memory it's really embarrassing like she's apologizing for this gift that she has you know um which again it's just it's what we do as women we don't you know we're we feel bad when we show up a, a man in the same position Uh, speaking of uh, male privilege, I think one of the most painful lines to me um, in the episode comes later on when uh, Benton is trying to convince Hathaway to reschedule Halle sometime <laughs> where they don't get in the way of each other. Yeah. And he tells Carol, but we are not equals. Mm-hmm. And she says, nurses are the cogs that make this place work not you. Yep. Which is so true. Which goes along with what we were talking about. I think Carrie was was speaking or no, it was Janie. It was talking about the different ways that we all work together in this this spinning wheel and how if we don't appreciate how all of those pieces go together, it's just not going to work. Yeah. So the fact that he would say he doesn't believe that she is an equal to him, that is oh, that's a horrible horrible thing to say that really shows the place that he is in right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was oh, just so infuriating. And I'm not usually one for passive aggression, but 
he totally deserved everything Hale did to him. Yep, yep, yep. Or didn't do to him, I guess. She was just refusing to do anything. <laughs> didn't do for him, yep. Yeah, didn't do a thing yep. to make his job any easier. Well, and I was proud of Carol Hathaway, too, for the way that, that she handled it, that, you know, Hale has to support four kids, and she works pretty much all the time, so... Yeah. How in the world is she going to, that's just not how the world works. Get over it, Benton. And she's been here like 20 years. You're a third year resident, you know, show some respect. And I think we've all known some nurses like that. Mm -hmm. The ones that you just don't cross. Yep, definitely. (laughs) Don't piss off the nurses is one of the first lessons you learn. But you want, well, you want those kind on your side too, Mm because they'll bend over backwards to make sure that you get treated well and that you're recognized as part of that cog, you know, part of the cogs and, and that, that wheel in the system. They, because they understand that that's. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I totally didn't mention in my recap, this was just a weird, like, I don't know, comic relief or something that. Bobcat Goldthwaite plays this patient who's hiding under a sheet the whole episode with with Carol. I wasn't really sure what that was about. And my husband asked me too, he says, is this supposed to be funny or is that some kind of really demented mental patient that's like, and why does she keep leaving him in there? Yeah, I I totally didn't get that whole thing. I'm not really sure I got it either. I thought maybe it was like an inside joke that the cast had that somehow ended up in the script because it really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Me neither, but I guess in the 90s, if you had Bobcat Goldthwaite available, you just stick him in there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Really? Oh, no. I'm a little older than you, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, he Bobcat was a comedian. He was a comedian, and he was pretty big in the 90s, and that, that weird voice that he has, it was very distinctive and very well known. Okie dokie. So he always... That much, you're not that much older than me. We usually get the same cultural references. Yeah, so. that's true, I guess. Maybe I was just a little more into pop culture. (laughs) (laughs) But we also have when when Green's in the helicopter and and he's making a small talk with uh, the uh, other staff in there and says, it's a hell of a life. (laughs) And they can't understand him because it's really noisy in a helicopter. So he doesn't have headphones. And says, I want to have sex with your wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thumbs up. Yeah, that was some good comic relief, too. Yeah, we needed that uh, with with Grace and the (sighs) gang shootings. Between all of that, we definitely needed the comic relief in there, too. That's another thing I would be interested in, knowing how the writers handle knowing just how much you know, the average television viewer can handle before they just want to turn the TV off. They just Mm -hmm. don't want to deal with it anymore. And what you have to, what's that ratio of putting in the funny stuff that feels like, you know, okay, I can stay till the next commercial. Back when there were commercials, you know. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, there still are on Hulu, so. Yeah, yeah. Not as many, for sure, as it was when it was on the air, but um, we still have to deal with commercials on Hulu. Which is what ER is on right now for everyone listening. Yeah, if you're in America, that's, that's what that's you can the time watch it we on. Can make our extra notes for the show is when the commercials come on. Mm-hmm. I still have to pause it. I can't write that fast usually. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, the 
there I feel like in the early seasons they they do a better job at finding the balance um like there were in some of the later years of ER I I just had to stop watching it for a while because I felt like so many of the episodes were just intensely dark bleak you know there were just there wasn't enough comic relief so I really appreciate the the funny moments you need them yeah And the same so, is true in um in real life in hospitals. I mean, I was thinking of this one really sad situation I was in where a, a matriarch of a family was dying and um one of the family members was listening to some music on his phone and some of the other people in the room said, you know, yeah, she she loved to listen to his music with him. I think this was a a great grandson if I remember right and so one of the nurses told him well you can turn it up and so he turns it up and it's this really really um explicit lyrics kind of um very sexual song and so we kind of all were just a uh, little red face but they're like yeah she just loved to listen to whatever her you know her family would listen to <laughs> all righty then yep yeah those moments do happen yeah Speaking of end of life, we have Grace, mm -hmm. which, of course, she couldn't have any other name. I, I, I don't know. I just immediately, I, was, I just wasn't surprised that Grace was her name. Yeah. <clears throat> so we could have had a chaplain from the hospital for Grace, or we could have had a hospice chaplain come in and sit with Grace. Right. We could have had either, but instead... We have this hospice worker who seems to uh, need a little bit of an attitude adjustment. I know that she lives with a really harsh reality, and she obviously knows everything that she needs to know about about Grace's, you know, medical case. But she seems to be all out of compassion. Um, we don't. I don't know if it says how long she's been working with her, uh, but just the fact that Grace has no one else mm -hmm. makes it really hard to think of think of this. Uh, nurse sitting across the room reading her magazine while this woman is writhing in pain on the table. So I really would like to know why they wouldn't have thought of a chaplain from one place or another. Yeah, this the, the nurse just seems very jaded to the whole thing. And um, I realize that you do have to maintain some distance when you're dealing with dying people every day. But, ooh, there was just like a real much. lack of compassion there. <laughs> Well, and just the whole idea of, of someone dying with no one beside them. And mm -hmm. that's what what Mark Green saw as so tragic. And so it was bothering him so much about the case. It, 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 it came down to that it wasn't even that she couldn't, he couldn't do anything more for her, although that bothered him. Yeah. It was knowing that there was no one else there and, uh, to share in that story and in that ending of her story. And uh, so... He seemed to really be trying to figure out how to bring the sacredness and the dignity back into that, and he just did not know what to do. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like as a chaplain, you know, you go in and you would have, I would have, you know, gathered her story from the nurse and from all the records, and then I would have held that in my heart and been with her and 
However, I could have. I don't even know if she would have won her handheld. That might have been too painful. At times, she does reach out. Yes, she does reach for out Dr. for Mark. Green, mm-hmm. And at times, she doesn't want any touch. So those are things that you need to be aware of and be respectful of. Um, and obviously, the things that were going on in her mind of just unfinished business was was pretty heartbreaking for everyone involved. Um, sometimes I would, if they would allow me to, I would ask them if I could do breathing exercises mm-hmm. with end-of-life patients, if that would help them. I'm, I would certainly never force that upon them, but I feel like that could have been helpful in her case to do guided meditation yes, or just work on breathing mm-hmm. um, as well as the physical touch if that was something that she was able. All those things can make a huge difference um, in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would want to know you know, is there, is there music that's really important for her? We could play some music. We could get music therapy in there. Um, we could sing to her if, if she is a person for whom religion is important. You know, if there are, there are scriptures that she would want to, to hear or prayers that she would want to either repeat with you or just have you say over her and things like that, maybe hymns that you could sing. All those things could have been useful. Just getting to know, you know, what is sacred to her and what's going going to be important for her to connect with in this end of her life. Yes. And, of course, it brings up the issue of her wanting to die and um, Green wondering if if that's something that he should do to give her more, an Mm. over, basically an overdose to, uh, you know, make it so she can't breathe very well anymore and that that would hasten things. It's never said in there whether he did that or not. And when Susan Lewis comes in at the end of the episode and he says that she has passed, that's not something she asks him either. Yeah. It doesn't matter at that point, of course, but we're left to figure it out for ourselves, decide whether or not that's something that he would have done. Mm Mm-hmm. It is frustrating sometimes when... You see patients who just can't seem to let go. I've known some that were so graceful about it that they really seemed to be able to choose the time, and then some that just just couldn't. And I, I certainly have no guesses as to how that works. Or mm-hmm. um, we would all love to think that we could, you know, that we could choose, you know, the dignity and the time of our passing if it were up to us, but sometimes that's just not how it works. Yeah. So we just use every every tool in our arsenal as chaplains in order to help if if that's the case, if it if is drawn out. And she keeps asking for her daughter. Um, and I can't remember if we hear how old the, the child is or not, um, but if maybe... Even if the, I'm, getting, even, I'm getting the feeling not too old. Yeah, maybe very young, maybe too young to to be there. That she doesn't want her to be there to see this. But you know, in the moments when she was lucid, if someone could have asked, if there's, you know, do you want me to write something down for her? If she wants to write a letter to her child or something to say goodbye, those things can be really important for dying patients too, and can be a way of helping them to let go because that seemed to be a big part of her hesitation and think that she still yes. had unfinished business um, with this daughter that she had to give up custody of when she entered hospice. 
just what a ugh, horribly painful thing that had to be. Yeah. Well, as long as we're on the heavy stuff, let's go ahead and dive in on the um, on the gang shooting. Oh yeah. Um. So we have a, the twelve-year-old that comes in with multiple gunshot wounds. I mean, it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. They pretty much know he's not going to make it. I think they called him a sieve. Lovely. Yeah. And the other kid that's coming in is apparently from whatever rival faction um, of this this drug gang. I think that's implied. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know where they got that actor, but boy, did that kid have a look. Yeah. The look on his face was chilling. I'm hoping that he was just, maybe he was older than he looked. I know, he looked very young. To have a 12-year-old that could have that much of a killer look, literally, is, is yeah, that was a good actor. Yeah. Kid. And nobody knew what to do. Yeah, I was really shocked that everybody just kind of froze, that nobody called security or police or anything. Yeah, you know, we have we have drills for that kind of thing yeah. nowadays. I'm pretty sure they would have had something like that going. Mm -hmm. If somebody comes in with a gun, there would have been some sort of protocol to follow. But, you know, makes for better TV if he can just back right out again and run off. Yeah, and I mean, I think city of any size nowadays there's some kind of gang activity we see it even here in charleston we see it pretty often um i've never seen kids that young but teenagers certainly um pretty often and anytime there's any shooting coming into our er one of the first things that security does is set up metal detectors at all the entrances um, just in case someone does come in like this to finish the job. Mm -hmm. I the yeah the place I trained I do recall some thirteen year olds. Wow. Especially well, they, and the older members of the gang dropped like dropped them off like rolling stop. Oh yeah. Them out of the car at the ER back entrance and then drove off. Yeah, we see um, a few of those too. So they always made the staff pretty angry. Although, this is madness was not the thing that came out of their mouth. That sounds like the elitist white boy trash thing to say. I know. I'm like, Carter, what rock have you been living under? You're in Chicago. Do you not know that this stuff happens, you know? <laughs> it's not that you should think it is normal, but come on. Oh. Yeah, he's just, he's so naive and sheltered. But working in the ER is definitely a... um a wake-up call really quickly. Yeah, I, I, can, I can honestly say that in all the time I worked in the hospital, which wasn't as long as any of the rest of y'all, I never did have any problems with weapons. So that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always been one of my fears because just as many, you know, like I said, as many gunshot wounds as we do see come into the ER, there's always that possibility. Um, but never as far as I know well no I take that back there's been one time when someone had a gun um in the, on the hospital campus at least I don't think they made it into a building but you know it's always it's always possible kind of scary yeah but like I said that's those are definitely the kind of things that they they do the drills and scenarios for now 
that are regularly set up for people to know exactly how to react and what the protocol is. So, yeah, we have to do those, I think, every year at least. The whole thing with them, um, Carol getting the new crash carts. I know that there are definitely um, times in the hospital when those kinds of things do happen, when there's sort of like departments fighting over the better equipment. And so Ter when, territorial. Yes, definitely yeah, territorialism. Definitely. And mm -hmm. um, we'll see, you know, you'll see something on a different floor that's labeled with spray paint or something like people mark their territory pretty quickly and so that it can find its way back home because the the newer equipment is um is very you know everybody wants to get their hands on that it's kind of hard to come by well because they don't want to get shocked by the old equipment yeah <laughs> yeah that was pretty bad when they said that they would get shocked by the defibrillators <laughs> yeah that was that was a funny little scene with uh all of them tiptoeing down the halls trying to take back what was theirs yeah almost cartoonish all of them hiding in the bathroom and then uh ross trying to talk up the uh that doctor from the other floor <laughs> yeah he was using his powers of flirting to distract her mm -hmm. i was like this was oceans 11 a few years before the actual oceans 11 <laughs> it's his <laughs> little crackle yeah <laughs> Yeah, so that embolism, that was a pretty cool scene. I yeah. Think, I think that, you know, as chaplains standing by, we do get to see those kind of, like, technological miracles every once in a while, too, mm -hmm. like, from the sidelines. So that was the way that they showed that and how cool everybody thought it was and just the immediate effects of how it helped the patient was cool. Yeah, definitely. And um, if a chaplain had been there when he first came in, it might have been helpful to have someone there with him, you know, holding his hand, trying to keep him calm as he's struggling to breathe, because that's got to be terrifying. Um, and he's sort of wondering what's going on. Then the episode ends with... Uh... Mark and his wife fighting while the kid's up in the bathtub. Yeah, trying to fight quietly enough that she won't hear them. And again, it's, uh, you know, I haven't watched this series before, but it seems like a drawn-out beginning of the end for them. This is the same argument they've been having since, like, episode two. Yeah, they keep and fighting they over whose career is more important. <laughs> side enough to switch their point of view, so. Nope. They've obviously both made their choice on their career. And I know I, I feel for both of them. Yeah. They've both worked very hard. And her point that, you know, she basically supported them while he was going through all of his training. It, it does come out seeming a little unfair. Yeah, she's got a point. It's just, you know, there's no good answer because... um. 
Mark doesn't have the same kind of job opportunities in Milwaukee that he has in Chicago. So they both want to advance in their careers and it doesn't seem like there's any way that they can both do it in the same city. Well, they're not willing to compromise. Neither one of them seems willing to compromise at this point. So. Well, and then at the very end of the episode is Peter coming home to check on his mother. And he's, he shows up two hours late on Jeannie's first day, which just, again, Benton, come on. <laughs> like, I would just be furious if I were her. She handles it a lot better. Um, but sure, she's not getting paid overtime for those two hours that she was there. Yeah, and then he... He's standing at the sink doing the dishes. Yeah, he does dig in to do the dishes, at least. Well, he, does, he doesn't go in to check on his mother. He doesn't... It's, it's a, to me, it was sort of an odd thing. Like, I, I'm assuming that she put her to bed and she's sleeping. Yeah, that was my assumption. I think that most people would just, like, go in and poke their head in and, you know... I, but his first thought is to do the dishes. It's something and practical. He's just, he just seems awkward. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't fit in in regular domestic life. He just doesn't know what to do. No. I think it's been so long since he's focused on family instead of work, and he's really trying to juggle both right now for the first time, but he still would rather be doing surgery. <laughs> Any other thoughts before we wrap up? I don't think so. We have yet to see whether um, whether Carol and her fiance will find their missing piece of luggage. Oh, yeah, that's right. That has all of their sex toys in there, I assume. Yeah, it was under so the under the desk in the ER. <laughs> I know, I was just waiting for somebody to open it at the desk, um, at the admissions desk in the ER, and look in there. <laughs> it would have been another great comic relief moment. Yeah. And Taglieri says he would never be able to show his face at work again. Which is always the thought that I have. Um, if And one of the first things that they normally do when you come in as a trauma in the ER is cut all your clothes off. So I'm always terrified that if I'm in a car accident or something and I'm brought in as a trauma, like I could never go back to work again <laughs> once everybody who works in the ER has seen me naked. Yes. Most of the time, nothing really catches their eye. I know. Um, they see it all the time. It doesn't even phase them, but it would just be hard for me. As the chaplain. Occasionally, we, we had someone that would, not because of their body itself, usually because of what they were wearing. Um, I recall one day in the middle of July, there was a man wearing Christmas um, underwear. <laughs> very, very bright Christmas underwear. Uh, and he was under the influence of a lot of things and uh, kept telling the cop that uh, he hadn't smoked no marijuana. <laughs> Which was obvious that he had. So yeah, that was one of our comic relief times. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the only time that I've really seen them staff sort of take notice is when there are some really interesting tattoos or sometimes very comical or graphic tattoos under people's clothes in intimate areas. That's kind of eye-catching yes, yes. sometimes. Yes. I don't have any of those. I'll just go ahead and put it out there right now. That's the only one I remember. <laughs> only because he kept drawing attention to himself. <laughs> So I think that is it um, for Long Day's Journey in February 5th, 95. We will wrap it up there and hope to be back soon with maybe a bigger contingent of chaplains. Yeah, shout out to all of our girls, our women who can't be here that are all out doing amazing things, making presentations and learning, taking a little time for themselves. And uh, we're praying for you and your endeavors. Definitely. Listeners, we would love to hear from you on social media or email about your thoughts on these episodes or what you're doing this summer. Tell us all the great conferences that you're going to and presentations you're making and um, vacation plans or anything else. We will be back with you soon to discuss more ER. Bye. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue 2, that's T-W-O, dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at Chaplains Watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.